0: The Paper Flower Consortium, Episode 1, Failure to Thrive. Recording by Loretta Fabron-Honfoy, a lady of the former Kingdom of France and the current historian and librarian of the Paper Flower Consortium. Languages change so much through the centuries, as do the methods of recording one's thoughts in history. I fear the change that is coming to English. Our initiation manual was written in 1917 and published in 1921. So many words have changed in the course of a century. In truth, keeping our history has always been a full-time occupation. Old journals crumble to time. Paper makes way to digital. There are and have always been change. The French I spoke as a girl is gone. My English is not so old, as I learned it in the 1940s from our fledgling, and yet sometimes I know I sound like someone's great-grandmother trying to stay hip. So before English gives way to emojis or whatever our next dominant language will be, I have made an effort to record journal entries in order to show the next generation of vampires What it is to be a vampire in this modern world, for fear we fall back into our old ways. The old ways will mean final death. So, let us begin with the subject of transformation. People seek vampirism for fundamentally individual reasons. Some come for eternal love, others for vengeance, or even a certain lifestyle. And some come to see what the future of humanity holds. While gothic fiction, films, and myths suggest that vampires choose to steal the souls of their victims and force them into eternity, most vampires consent to vampirism. It is our greatest shame when a vampire is created without their blessing. But I will not lie and say that it does not happen. The initiation and education laws were enacted in 1921, but by then, most legitimate covens only allowed transformation with an individual's agreement. An instruction explaining the reality of our existence. Not just because immortality destroys one's former life, but it also dissolves any chance for an easy or culturally good death. Before the initiation laws, the most common reason for failure was the creator took too much blood, and the initiate exsanguinates before the blood could be restored. The law brought in other guidelines. Initiates must be 25 years of age, and weigh at least 110 pounds in the United States or 50 kilos internationally. It is also suggested there is no more than 20 pounds difference between the creator and creation. This protects the initiate. Rebirths are now coven-wide affairs. Several vampires are present in order to ensure the initiate does not lose consciousness until death takes them. These guidelines slashed fledgling mortality rates. All that being said, the transformation is still dangerous. Movies create the illusion that any human can be transformed into a vampire. That is simply not true. All creatures lose offspring and vampires are no exception. Many come to the coven believing eternal life is absolute, but the initiate must defeat death. And this is why we inform all potential newcomers that some transformations fail. The biggest fear for any vampire progenitor is failure to thrive. We have no idea why it happens. Some believe God, and I am not claiming just a single God, but whichever God the vampire believes in, sanctions our undead existence. Some believe there is an intrinsic defiance against the natural order, and some believe in simple luck. The truth is, no one knows. There are those who shouldn't have survived the rites, and they endure, while others with every advantage perish. Most discussion around failure to thrive is filled with the fallacy that the vampire gently disappears into the night. But I mean to set the record straight. It is a horrifying experience for the creation, the creator, and their bloodline. The Paperflower Consortium experienced this agony in 1903 when my husband lost his firstborn, Walter Davidson, after his transformation. Walter's conversion started off well. He had come to us under his own free will after finding us in the telephone directory. Charles. Walter sought an existence of peace. He looked at both of our first-generation male vampires, but chose Charles as his mentor due to the similarities in their history and dispositions. He was quite a jolly fellow, and we all liked him. Charles was ecstatic. He was so excited to experience the connection between him and his firstborn. You see, Charles, at that point, had been a vampire for 211 years. I had had my firstborn ten years prior, and now that the coven was settled in the Seattle area and we were financially stable, Charles was thrilled to be chosen. At the night of his rebirth, Walter was 29 years old and sound in mind and body. He had spent two years in his instruction, and he swore he looked forward to eternity. He did not tremble as he relaxed onto the gurney which was covered with a thin mat for his comfort. As a Christian, he read a prayer to our shared God. Charles opened Walter's radial artery with his fangs and drank in his blood until Walter grew pale. Agatha, a learned healer and the eldest of our number, listened to Walter's pulse slow. As Walter's consciousness began to fade, Charles stabbed himself in the chest and gave Walter his life force. It seemed Walter drank deeply. And flush with vampire blood, he lay back on the gurney in order to die. Charles stabbed him in the carotid artery. Walter didn't even have time to scream, but his eyes showed the agony of death. But that was to be expected. Even the quickest death pains the direct bloodline. Charles, Jacob, and Agatha felt Walter pull existence away from them, seeking their gifts and their blessings. Jacob's second son, Derek, and Agatha's daughters, myself and Pascaline, were immune from this pain, so we were there to assist. Agatha signaled to us that Walter's heart had slowly begun to beat again, and Walter awoke as a vampire a few minutes later. He screamed, as most new vampires do. "'Are you hungry?' Agatha asked. "'Ravenous,' Walter said. Pascaline Derek, and I gave the fledgling our blood "'until his complexion mimicked life. "'Once he was able to sit up. "'The coven's two other young vampires, "'my son Xiao and Pascaline's daughter Alice, "'brought him the flesh of animals, wine, and boiled sweets. "'We sang songs and prayed until the sun rose. "'We happily went to our coffins. "'The transformation seemed a success.' However, the next night, Walter was not seen either at work or in the public parlor. Charles, gifted with clairvoyance, knew his son was in his apartment, so we went to check on him. Walter's thrall sat, half-dressed, in the hallway. "'He kicked me out,' she said. She was not injured. She hadn't even been touched. So I told her, "'Go on to our home. Our thralls will ensure you eat and give you a robe.' We gently knocked on Walter's door. He did not answer. We knocked again. Still no answer. Charles turned the knob. It was unlocked. "'Walt, it's Loretta and I. Are you decent?' Walter, dressed to his waistcoat, sat at an east-facing window. He did not speak as we entered the room. A cup of cool blood sat on the table beside an unfolded newspaper. The thralls' breakfast was half-eaten, and I made a mental note to tell my thralls to take her in until all this was sorted out. "'Walt?' Charles asked. There was still no answer. Charles pressed his hand upon Walter's shoulder. "'Son, what are you looking at?' "'The vastness of eternity,' Walter said in a slow, cryptic voice. "'It will never end.' "'What won't end?' Charles asked. There's another war, Walter replied. As he spoke, I caught a whiff of musty death on his breath. Something inside him was rotting. But we live in peace, I said. Walter sighed deeply. Does that make me a coward, not fighting anymore? Charles glanced over at me, his eyes filled with apprehension. I said, Walter, you are not a coward, nor is Charles or Jacob. You have all seen battles. But they don't ever stop," Walter said. If I'm honest, I knew Walter was lost, but we still attempted to save him. Charles was still weak from his transformation, but I had blood to spare. Do you need another infusion, Walt? I asked. No, lady, thank you. I can bring your thrall to you. No, lady, thank you, Walter repeated and stared out the window. I asked, does your gift trouble you? He just said no, but I could see the lie in his cold and empty eyes. I bled into a bottle and set it on the window sill with a cup. For when you get hungry, my husband's son. And I bent down and kissed him. The rot smelled stronger as my lips pressed against his cheek. Walter made no move to take it. He just sat and stared out the window, which only casted the reflection of his clothing. "'The bottle of blood coagulated on the windowsill. "'An hour before dawn, Charles closed the shutters. "'We returned to our coffin. "'My sweet husband tossed and turned through that day, "'and though I was worried, I held my beloved close "'and told him not to worry. "'The next night, Walter was still unresponsive. "'The smell of decay was pungent in the same clothing "'he had worn the night before. "'His eyes were no longer just empty.' but they had lost their luster. They were milky. We phoned Agatha and asked for her to check on him. And though Walter was indifferent, his temperature was normal, his pulse was slow and steady as it should be, and his reflexes seemed typical, Agatha consulted the ancient vampires who ran Strawberry Fields, the coven over in Bellevue. They did not have good news. Jacob, almost as old as his wife, cut open his wrist and pressed it into the other man's face. Walter did not move to take it. He just sat there. Charles begged, You are my son, my firstborn. Don't you know how much I love you? In a slow, hollow voice, Walter replied, Outside is a city full of sentiments and anguish, and yet it all feels so distant in the vastness of eternity. Just a sip, Charles cried. "'Bloody tears crested his eyes and cascaded down his cheeks. "'Even your sorrow is hazy, and you stand right beside me.' "'We did not know those words would be his last. "'By the third night, the smell of corruption and putrefaction filled the apartment. "'The wraith, which was Walter, stared out of his window. "'I tried to embrace him and coax him to take just a sip of blood, "'but his flesh squished under my hand like it was a bag of watery vitre.' His once strong muscles had disintegrated until he was nothing more than loose skin sunk into spindly bones. As a lady of the court, my training kicked in, and I forced myself not to vomit or show any discomfort. Charles, however, raged. It is my lady's blood. Drink it. How dare you not drink it? Walter did not answer. Charles opened his wrist again and begged him to drink again and the wraith, which had been Walter, ignored the blood on my husband's wrists and cheeks. He stared out the window into the night until Charles closed the shutters. We returned to our coffin to a day of not sleeping and worry. I tried to sing Charles a sweet song to comfort him, when suddenly my husband shrieked and tried to push me away. "'Run, Loretta!' he shouted and tried to slap in-existence flames from his body. I moved out of the way of his thrashing limbs and rolled onto the floor before I realized his nerve knees must be on fire. Bloody sweat stained his pajamas and coated his hair and beard. I ordered the thralls to fill our bathtub with cold water. We struggled to get my husband into it as he shrieked. When he was coherent, which was not often, Charles claimed that I should run from him in the hideous day. At one point he tried to order me to leave him. He didn't want me to see him so weakened, and he didn't want me to remember him so scarred and burnt. I did send the thralls away, but I refused to leave my husband's side until the connection between he and his firstborn was torn asunder. It took hours. Pascaline brought me ice for Charles and then went to assist Jacob and Agatha who also suffered. Charles hugged the ice and rubbed it on himself until his skin blued, blistered, and cracked. And yet, he still felt the heat as Walter burned. I tried to dominate his mind, but Charles kept repeating, I see my son. His rotting flesh is burning off of him. His rotting flesh is burning. Not knowing what else to do, I finally cried, Then sleep! Charles collapsed from agony and exhaustion. I wiped my beloved's brow with cool water and washed the blood away and too soon he had woken again. Charles was strangely quiet and distant. He stared at the ceiling. His expression was cold and hollow and haunted, just like Walter's expression had been. So I shook him and cried, "'Don't you dare leave me, Charles Enfoy!' And he blinked and looked at me, as if he just realized I was there." I think I think Walter's mostly gone. Perhaps his brain had been destroyed. There is no more burning, just wretchedness and pain. What should I do? I asked him. Charles put out his hand, so I helped him out of the tub and into a fresh sleeping shirt. I sat on the sofa and read my fingers through his hair until Walter's soul was freed from his body. Charles wept for a long time until finally he fell asleep, this time naturally. After the sun moved across the building and it was safe to do so, I collected the ash. It sits in a silver urn on top of our china cabinet. Surrounded by silver, Walter will be safe forever. The rug and all of Walter's clothing and most of the upholstered pieces were later burned. The janitor needed to do several applications of lemon juice and wood oil to get the smell of decomposition out of the apartment floors. As Walter's thrall was heterosexual and did not want to leave the coven, she went and stayed with Jacob. My beloved never forgot his firstborn. He blamed himself for decades. He didn't trust that his blood wasn't somehow wrong. In his pain he sought answers, though there are none. He read hundreds of books. He wrote to many of our ancient ancestors for advice. One actually replied, We have all had fledglings who failed to thrive, as if that was supposed to bring Charles any comfort. The only consolation Charles ever found is that in his immortal memories is the two years which he and Walter had before the transformation and the belief that his son's soul has gone on to heaven. It was fifty years before my beloved tried to create another vampire. Thankfully, that transformation was successful. No a word from our sponsor. This history was brought to you by Photos Evermore, a proud subdivision of the Paperflower Consortium. Are you an initiate concerned that a creature of darkness is unable to reflect light and therefore unable to be caught on film and digital photography? Photos Evermore records your photograph for posterity, future documentation, and identification. We can even future-proof your social media with a hundred glamorous selfie-style photographs which we can Photoshop into future vacation, dog park, or dining pics. Affordable packages based on your need. Before you stop reflecting light forever, think photos evermore. Visit us on our website to schedule an appointment tonight. And now I will field two follow-up questions from our initiates. The first one asked... What is Agatha's bloodline mortality rate? Now, I will start off by admitting Agatha's bloodline mortality rate is skewed badly. You see, Derek's firstborn, William, experimented on over 100 humans in 1951. He wanted to create an undead army. Only one of his experiments survived, and by all rights, she shouldn't have. However, these were not coven-sanctioned initiations— so, if you remove Williams' experiments, we have approximately a 3% fledgling mortality rate from the bloodline of Agatha. And this second initiate question asks, Who can be infected by the vampire virus? Please understand, the ability to transform and the ability to legally transform are two different things. Before the 1921 initiation laws forbade such things, many vampires created beloved working animals or pets from mammals. I have personally only seen one, a beautiful war horse, who lived over two millennia. Reptiles do not seem to be infected, or if they can be, they die quickly. This is perhaps because they need the warmth of the sun to function, but it is unclear to us. Insects and birds don't seem to be able to survive the transformation, or if they do, they die the first time they take flight. Even though people think bats are related to vampires, the truth is that bats also probably would not survive the transformation. Occasionally we have heard of hybrids between werewolves and vampires, however, prevailing science shows that to be a rare phenomenon if that ever happens. In practice, werewolves die if infected by vampires and vampires die when infected by werewolves. Merfolk seem to be immune from the virus, and the Fae are more immortal than we are, so there is no reason for them to wish to be vampires. Legally, what that means is only humans can be altered into vampires. However, as I said before, they must be at least 110 pounds and 25 years of age, and be educated, and have a full medical workup before they are altered. And this includes checking for other transformational viruses, such as those that might turn them into werewolves or zombies. There is one other point I would like to make. When dealing with witches, which of course are humans, the transformation becomes more dangerous than most. Latent abilities become quite active, and training becomes obligatory. As you may know, Derek and all of his offspring have been witches. Their powers of the mind, though useful, have also been quite dangerous to our coven. And at one point, we had to decide if we were going to cauterize that branch of the bloodline. But that is a story for another time. I hope you found tonight's episode useful and educational. Good day, beloved initiates, and sleep the sleep of the dead. The Paperflower Consortium podcast was written and performed by Elizabeth Gazzetti. You can learn more by going to elizabethgazzetti.com slash paperflowerconsortium. If you have a question for Lady Loretta, please click the Ask Lady Loretta button or email her at info at paperflowerconsortium.com. The intro and outro music was written by Evan Witt, and you can find his work at www.wittynotes.com. Thanks for listening.